Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good. Well, I am another John. I'm a Jonathan, so I'm J-O-N. So John with an H, he's, you know, second class, right, John? Yeah. Well, it's really good to be here with you guys. Uh, have you ever heard the phrase, you never get a second chance to make a first impression? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Somebody up in the balcony, they've, sure, they've heard that. May not always be the lasting impression that we have of someone, um, but it's true. That's a powerful reality that we experience all the time, that we, we form first impressions uh, about people and places all the time. I'm just curious, uh, how long do you think it takes for us to form that first impression? Let's just hear, you know, just shout it out. Like, how long do you think it takes? What's, what's your guess? 15 seconds? 15 seconds? Seven seconds? Seven seconds? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm here to tell you that there was one study that was done that found that it takes three seconds. Three seconds to um, basically make some quick determinations about a person. And there's actually a name for it. There's always a name for it, right? It's called thin slicing. Thin slicing. I know that sounds like a really weak or limp piece of pizza, um, <laughs> but it really just stands for like a really thin experience, a small experience that we have of another person. I had a friend um, tell me the other day that when she thinks of me, like in her head, um, she has me wearing this shirt. And I thought, well, on a day where you're going to get a little thin slice of me, I'll wear my shirt that other people think of when they think of me. So here we go. I'm managing your thin slicing that's going on right now in your head. Um, but what's interesting is that we will make up to 12 different determinations unconsciously and consciously about people in just three seconds. Um, we'll make determinations about whether or not that person is trustworthy uh, we'll make decisions about uh, their economic status and even how intelligent they are, right? Three seconds, we determine a ton of stuff. Well, why am I telling you about this? Um, well, because I think that might be a helpful concept for us to think about when we think about what we think about when we think about God. <laughs> that was a lot of thinking. Um, we have impressions of God. We have a thin slice of what we think God is like. And our, our image of God can be formed uh, through several different ways, through the ways that people uh, treated us as we grew up, the way that we learned to think about ourselves, how people treated us and talked to us and interacted with us, um, through the stories that people told us about God, the experiences that we've had, and the teachings that we've had about God. And some of our images about God might be accurate um, and helpful and good. Some might be incomplete or distorted. And what we're trying to do in this series called Jesus Is, what, what we're trying to do is um, take steps towards uh, pictures of God that are life-giving and whole and good that give life to us and our community. And the good news is that we would say in the Christian tradition that God has revealed God's self to us and has revealed himself to us through the person of Jesus. That, that Jesus is God in flesh. And what we have in the, in the Gospels specifically is we have a collection of stories and sayings of Jesus. And the first followers of Jesus put those together. They, they organized them to give us vivid portraits of what Jesus is like. And by looking at those portraits and examining them, we get a sense also of what God is like. 
Because with Jesus, we're not just getting a thin slice, we're actually getting a look at the whole pie. And in my head, that whole pie is a, it's a nice pizza with sausage and green olive. All right, we call that the Joe Madden at our house. You know, he, he recommended that a few years ago. But that's what Jesus gives us. He gives us a picture of the whole pie. And one of those sayings I want to focus on here today uh, is, is something that Jesus said about himself. So Jesus self-identified in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, right here on the screen. He said, I am gentle and humble in heart. And the word I want to focus on here today out of that saying is the word gentle. Now, a lot of things might come into our minds when we think about God. We might think about God as powerful or commanding. We might think of God as loving, but does the word gentle ever come into your mind? Right? It's probably not the first thing that we think about. But Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. And if Jesus is gentle, then that also means that God is gentle. Now, there are a lot of places that we could go to in the Gospels that reveal the gentleness of Jesus, but I want to focus on one specific uh, story today, and it comes from uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8. If you have a Bible, I've got mine here. If you've got one on your phone, you can open that up. Uh, John, chapter 8, we're going to look at, uh, it's actually, uh, in some Bibles, it might be John seven fifty three, but John, the very beginning of this, uh, I'm going to try to read my Bible. I, more and more, I can't see my Bible. I'm not quite 57, but I'm trucking down the line. We're all just going to roast John today on his birthday. I kid because I care. <laughs> all right, so Jesus is teaching, and it's early in the morning. And it says this, At dawn he, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Then in the next verse it says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Have you heard this story before? So, so the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, these are sort of the religious leaders of the day. And, uh, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were, say, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, a couple observations about this story. This is a really, like, abrupt thing, right? It's like first thing in the morning. It's dawn. They're all gathered here. Jesus speak. And, and the teachers of the law bring a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery right before Jesus. And, and the, it says there that they were using this woman as a way to trap Jesus. Now, well, how do we know that? Well, a couple things that we might say. Like, so first off, it's really a jarring thing. Nobody, like, went up to Jesus discreetly and said, hey, we've got a case that we need you to talk about. Like, we need your opinion on this. Like, they weren't really interested in his opinion. They were more interested in um, getting Jesus to sign off on a lynching that they knew would be unpopular among his followers. And... Um, 
And the other kind of big reason why we know that this isn't like a genuine question about what should we do about the woman is that the other person, who's probably a man, is not anywhere in the picture. They just have a woman there all by herself, maybe pulled straight out of the act itself, so she maybe is barely clothed, and they've paraded her in front of a bunch of people. So not only would that be humiliating because you have been kind of caught in the middle of something, that you maybe knew you weren't supposed to do, that's going to rupture the family and your life, um, but you like being paraded in front of a bunch of people. Like, so it not only is it humiliating, but it's absolutely dehumanizing. These guys want to just use her as a pawn in some religious game that they're trying to play. And I just wonder what, what this woman is, is thinking. Well, and, and, and the other thing that I want to mention, too, is that this wasn't an uncommon thing in the, in the ancient world, at least the way that the, the woman is being treated. She's being treated unfairly because this was often the case where women were treated according to a different standard than men when it came to situations like this, kind of like how that still happens often in our world today. So, so they bring the woman before Jesus, and they want him to make some kind of declaration about this. But then Jesus does something really interesting. It says, then Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And everybody wants to know, like, what in the world was Jesus doing? What was he writing on the ground? Well, guess what? Nobody really knows what Jesus was doing. Some people think that he was just writing in the ground to give himself some space to think. Like, that sounds like a pretty good, that's a pretty good explanation. Like, you know, you kind of put in a weird spot. It's a big public thing. All the people are there listening, waiting to hear you teach, and then this, interrupt, this thing happens. Um, how do you disarm this? How do you treat this person with respect? How do you uh, pastor everybody in the room who's watching this? And so Jesus begins to write on the ground. Other people think that maybe Jesus was writing the sins of the, the leaders on the ground. That's really hard to say. I'm not really convinced by that. Others think that maybe Jesus was writing the words from the prophet, Jeremiah chapter 17 says, those who turn away from God will be written in the dust. But we don't really know. It, it puzzles the religious leaders, and they continue to badger him. They continue to kind of pepper him with questions. And then finally, Jesus kind of straightens up a little bit. He's probably sitting on the ground and he says this famous line, he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And so with just one line, what Jesus does is he cuts right through that double standard. He, he kind of breaks the trap that had been set for him, and he calls his accusers to self-reflection, to self-examination. And what he does is he just levels the playing field, and they go away one after the other. We don't know, you know how long that took. Maybe it was in just a couple moments. Maybe it was a couple minutes. But then it's just Jesus and this woman who has been horribly dehumanized and humiliated. 
And then it says that Jesus straightened up or he stood up. He was probably, it was pretty popular at the, in that day to sit while you were teaching. He stands up. I imagine he looks her in the eye and he says, woman, where are they? Now, woman, we don't say that in my house. <laughs> right? Very early on in our marriage, right? My wife was like, do not, never say that. Like, we don't say woman um, in the Hughes home. But what this is, is this is a sign of respect. This is like calling someone, like what you would say to your mom, mother, right? He says, woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So put yourself in her shoes for, for just a moment. She has to be stunned and frightened. And she's had to, she was all alone in, in this, and she's finally relieved to realize that Jesus is a different kind of rabbi. She's relieved to know that Jesus understands. Maybe you know what it's like. Maybe you've been in the woman's shoes. Maybe you've been humiliated. Maybe you've been, um, maybe you've been caught red-handed doing something, and maybe somebody came out and took their frustration and their anger out on you. Maybe they wanted to punish you, uh, make you an example to somebody else. And, and so often when we are, are caught in the middle of a, of a, a failure, um, what we tend to do is we tend to hide. Like we tend to hide from the situation. Maybe we try to hide from, from the per other persons that are involved. Maybe we try to hide from God. It actually makes me think of uh, a time when my youngest son, his name is Justice, uh, I remember, I can't even remember now what it was, but he had done something that he wasn't supposed to do. And, you know, he's got big emotions like all of us. And he, and he was just really upset about, about something. And, um, and he kind of went out of the room, didn't storm out of the room, just walked out of the room after we got done talking. And um, I went walking downstairs, um, kind of looking for him. And I look over, and in our kind of living room area, he's huddled over. He must have just been balled up in the corner of our sectional couch. And he had taken all of the, like the cushions, like some of the other cushions, and he had built for himself this fort, like all around him so that nobody could see him. And he was just hiding. He was hiding. He was, he was ashamed. And, and I, when I saw that, I, I, I immediately, my heart went out to him because I've been there. You've been there. We've all been there. Like, we've all built our own fortress of solitude. And, and what do you say? Like, what do you do to bring someone out of hiding? Like, what would you do? Like, if your friend is, is, is holed up in a fortress of solitude, how do you interact with them in order to bring them out of hiding? Well, I sat down on the couch, and I, I just began to whisper to him. And I began to say, hey, Justice, what's going on? What, you, what are you doing? Are you okay? Why don't you come out? Can I see you? Like, and it just began, like in this way, to begin to coax him in a very gentle way out of his hiding. 
That to me is what gentleness is. And Jesus says that he's gentle. He was firm in that moment, right? He was firm. He stood up for and defended this woman. He disarmed it. He cut through the double standard. He caused the, the religious leaders that were dehumanizing this woman to, they called them into self-examination. But he was gentle at the same time. Pastor uh, Dane Orland wrote, writes this in, in a book where he talks about the gentleness of God. He says, Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Jesus is gentle. This caused the writer of Hebrews, another, uh, another letter in the latter part of the New Testament, um, wrote this about Jesus, making a comparison to Jesus as a high priest for us. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have, been tempted, we have, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as you are, yet he did not sin. I love that right there. It says, we don't have a high priest that can't empathize. We have a high priest that can. We have a high priest that can empathize with us, who knows what it's like to, 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 to be tempted, who knows what it's like to be in that little fortress of solitude. To, to empathize means to share the feeling, like to understand it, to enter into the emotion with us, we have a high priest named Jesus who's been there too. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? It makes all the difference when somebody else has been there. Like if a relationship is blowing up or um, we're going through a divorce or we've had failure at work or, or we're trying to break an addiction, it makes all the difference in the world if there's somebody else who's been there and knows what it's like. And when I say they've been there and knows what it's like, it's, I don't mean like somebody who will listen to you for like five seconds and then begin to kind of compare their story just like that to your story and make it about themselves. No, Jesus is the one that will listen and enter into the, the emotion with us and let us know that we're not alone. The Hebrew writer goes on in the next verse and says, says this, it says, let us then approach the throne of God's grace with confidence, knowing that there, there is mercy and grace. Jesus understands us. He deals with us gently. He coaxes us out of our hiding, and he calls us to new beginnings. Notice what he says to the woman. He says, I don't condemn you. Um, but then he says, he says this, go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't overlook what's happened as if it's not a big deal. He doesn't act like, you know, because this is a serious thing that's probably going to cause a huge rupture in her, her family and in her life. But what does he do? He sees her need, sees the problem at hand, and he works with her to bring restoration. What I hear Jesus say by this is, is, you don't have to be defined by your past. You are not defined by the worst thing that you've ever done. He says, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. 
So this is a new beginning for her. It's a new beginning for us if we've ever been in that position. But it's also, interestingly, an opportunity for a new beginning for the other people involved. I mean, we love this story when we think about the woman and when we identify with a woman, but the story also represents a new beginning for the religious leaders as well. You know, I wonder what they thought about when they went home. Like, I gotta, I gotta imagine that was probably an embarrassing thing for everybody involved, right? This didn't go the way that they thought they did, and their, their own, like, like, evil designs were, like, laid out in front of everybody that's gathered there to see, and I just wonder what they thought about when they went walking home. Like, have you ever been there, like, where you've You've, you've done something, you've maybe accused something, like someone, you've, you've wanted to be the person to throw a stone, and then you realize that you were in the wrong. And then you begin to examine yourself, and just depending on how deep that self-realization goes, that actually can be a moment that begins a new beginning for you. We love the story when, it, when, we're, when we think about the woman, but if we're honest, we're often a bit more like the religious leaders than we'd care to admit. I mean, think about what happens when somebody does you wrong, right? It could be something trivial like cutting you off in traffic or maybe something really hurtful like a, a friend that betrays you. And what do we want to happen when, when, when someone comes along and wrongs us? We want that person to pay. Right? And we live in a world that is all about making sure that people pay for the things that they do wrong, that they get what they're coming to us. But like, if you could think about that for a second, like who's somebody that you know needs to pay for something they did to you or to someone that you love? And now imagine Jesus standing there with them saying to that person that you'd like to stone, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. You see, Jesus gives us all a chance to break the cycle of condemnation. He wants to lead all of us into a new beginning. He wants to give all of us the chance to drop the stone, break the cycle of revenge and condemnation. But I wonder if some of you right now are thinking, okay, John, that sounds really great. A new beginning. But new beginnings are hard, and often we, we think, well, God's grace is for other people. New beginnings are for other people, but not really me. Because we live with our mistakes. We live with the things that we've done. We live with the things that we've done to others. And honestly, it's kind of hard to let go of them. Like, we keep a record of wrongs. I mean, how many of you have, like, maybe you've done something, like maybe you said something. I know I've ha had this happen where I've said something, and then it's like, it's like coming out of my mouth, and I'm like, no, come back here. And then, like, later on when you have a, a quiet moment, maybe you're laying in bed, like, what happens? You watch that happen, right? And then you get to the end of it, and you're like, okay, I think we're done. And then, nope, like rewinds. We're going to watch that again, and then we're going to watch it again. 
and then we're going to watch it again. It's like there's this little rewind demon inside of us that's always rewinding and playing back for us the things that cause us shame, the things that, that when, where we experience blame. But what Jesus' gentleness shows us is that Jesus loves us, that we are forgiven, that we're accepted, that we are not condemned. And he, and he wants to teach us this in, in our times of prayer, and he wants to teach us this through this community, that if we could treat one another and love one another and not condemn one another, not point our fingers at one another, maybe we could get it deep down in our bones that we're not condemned. So maybe just for a moment, I'd like for you to think about maybe something that you just can't let go of. Like what was the last rewind demon? Like what's the last replay that you experienced? Just something that you can't get out of your head. Could you call that to your mind? And, and picture yourself standing there in front of Jesus. And I want you to hear his words as if he were standing right here speaking to you. I want you to hear the gospel, the good news that you are not condemned. You are not condemned. You're 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 not condemned. Maybe turn to somebody next to you. Just, just look at them and just say, you are not condemned. We are loved. We are loved by God. We are loved by Jesus. If we could, if we could take that in, get it down in our bones, and live it, I think we would find freedom, joy, and we would have the courage and the patience to be gentle with others. I want you to imagine, as I close, that God wants you to get this, and he wants you to get it really well, and that, he would, and that God would do this by writing you a love letter to remind you of how much God knows you and empathizes with you and feels about you, to remind you of the truth that you are loved and embraced. If God were to write you a letter, what would, what would it say? I want to spend a few moments right now just listening. We're going to sing an, another song and we're going to hear a story here on video. And imagine, what do you think God would say to you in that letter? And, and as you walk out of here today, as you go home, and as this week as you, uh, as you process this, maybe even just get out your phone and just write down, what kind of things would God say to you if God's if God wrote you a letter, what would it say? How would it feel? What do you need to hear from God today? My name is Chris Heller, and I've been on staff here at Community for 14 years. 
Growing up with my personality type, I really struggled with self-worth and condemnation and kind of a like a scorecard with God. And so when you're constantly living in this uh, anxiety and tension, that's heavy. And, and that started at a young age. Unfortunately, these lies followed me into adulthood. And it wasn't until recently that I really got to hear God's word speak over those lies in my life. I was able to, to meet with some people, some people who are dedicated Christ followers who really go after intercessing for you coming in and saying, I'm here to, to walk alongside of you and help fight off those enemy attacks. When you're in that situation of, of feeling condemned, disqualified, unworthy, it's hard for you to hear the truth. Someone who didn't know me, uh, who knew they were going to meet with this person named Chris, uh, and they were listening to worship music and just allowing God, the Holy Spirit, to speak to that person. And the cool thing was that without knowing me, she took the opportunity to write a love letter from God to myself, um, and she got to share it with me. It says, my dearest son, I have never left you, and I have never given up on you. Even though sometimes you can't feel me there, the truth is I am here with you. I see you, your hurts, and your disappointments. This was a blessing, uh, something that uh, I've been able to, to take and shift that, uh, that view of how God views me and to become a person that God desires me to be. I would encourage you to take that time to sit down and listen to the Holy Spirit. Say, what are you really saying about me? Through reading scripture, uh, being around potentially a small group or however God is speaking into you. And maybe that's sharing with somebody else who's struggling with the same thing that, you know, Maybe you know that truth and that truth is resonating with you. I encourage you to share with them, uh, lead them into experience what God's love is for them as well. I know that I'm not condemned. I know that I'm not disqualified. I know that God has great purpose for me. Uh, and I know that God has great purpose for, for everyone. And the lies do not need to speak louder than God's word. So what would God's letter say to you? Maybe spend some time this week reflecting on this story, praying and writing. I think Jesus would want us all to know that we are, are loved, that we are not condemned. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that you are here, that you are with us. That in this moment of communion is where you want us to have our eyes opened to your love, to your goodness, to, to realize and, and, and allow your Holy Spirit to come to life in us. Lord, help us to, to know your love, to break the cycle of blaming and shaming and condemnation in our relationships, in our families, in our workplaces. Help us to, to know your love and help us to be people that are gentle with others. Help us to be like you. And we pray all these things in the resurrected name of Jesus. Amen.